Right, I'll set some context. I'm recording this in the waiting area between having had my bags checked and my passport checked in Frankfurt Airport. But not actual Frankfurt Airport, mind. This is Frankfurt Hahn Airport, which um, is not in Frankfurt. I mean, it's basically Luxembourg. I actually think I flew into this airport to go to Luxembourg back when I was a student. Uh, I actually do, do think it might actually be closer to Luxembourg than it is Frankfurt. It is one of these regional airports that is just a shed. It's got all of the aesthetic credibility of a warehouse. Uh, I mean, the pe- I must say, the people who work here are remarkably nice, given the fact that not a single bit of care is given to the environment. Anyway, I'm talking into a microphone, into a recorder. Also, people are giving me no looks at all. I thought obnoxiously talking into an SM58 with a windshield and a little recorder on my lap might make people think, what is he doing? But no, um, anyway, I've got time to kill. So I'm like, right, I've got the feed, the Ollie Horn podcast. Let's just, let's, just, let's just see if I can ramble uh, and make something interesting happen. I've just had a very interesting car journey with an American guy called Grant. Grant works for the Air Force. He's not allowed to say what he does, but I asked him enough questions to work out that he works for the intelligence, and he was shady enough that um, he obviously works for intelligence. And he is a comedian, uh, and he did the open spot at the shows that I've just done at two American army bases, and we had the most fascinating chat. First, he knew like loads of he knew loads of British comedians. He knew people, um, he knew people like Simon Munnery. Uh, so like like proper comedy fan, uh, big fan of Stuart Lee, and uh, anyway he's been gigging for a good few years it seems. Um, but obviously living uh, in the arse end of Germany means he doesn't have much opportunity for stage time. But every month or so uh, there are these bass gigs which are run by this uh, nice American lady called Erin, uh, and I was brought out to do a couple of them, um, on, literally on American soil. It's it's, it's marvelous. You go um, <laughs> you have to like go through a bunch of security and they take your photo and you give your passport, and then it is America. Like, the supermarket, the commissary, that's what they call it, is all American stuff. Like, you walk in and it's just, like, piled high with Gatorade. Like, a, a, a legitimate, non-negligible amount, non-negligible amount of American uh, military spend is on flying Cheetos to uh, regional army bases to make sure that the troops' morale stays high. Anyway, so uh, did those gigs, and then I did another gig just before I left uh, south of Frankfurt uh, in a place called Darmstadt, uh, which seems like a bit of a nondescript town. I, um, my observation was the main thing they seem to have is like a massive clock tower, but they've got nowhere to be on time for. <laughs> Basically nothing there. Um Maybe it's nice. Maybe I underestimated it. But anyway, I did a I, I did a, a small show there. They have like an open mic. An open mic they charge 10 euros for. It's remarkable. These nascent comedy scenes, what they get away with. Uh, and they had me as like a feature closer. They gave me a little bit of cash. Um, but because I hadn't really planned things very well, I was expecting to go from Darmstadt west to Mainz, M-A-I-N-Z. Not sure how that's pronounced. Where I knew there was a bus that I could then take onwards to Frankfurt-Hahn which is so far um, west of Frankfurt that it is basically Luxembourg. And uh, I don't know what, what I did wrong. Well, I do know what I did wrong. I, didn't, um, I wasn't diligent enough. 
and there isn't the bus which I thought existed doesn't exist or certainly doesn't on a Sunday. So I had to say to these guys, look, maybe if I open now, can I open your open mic and then try and go and get this bus? And then the show started late and then the MC just kind of waffled on. And so I thought, well, I'm not even going to make that now. Thankfully, this guy, Grant, who I met uh, doing these gigs on the bass, he came to watch as a, as a spectator this gig. Not only did he do that, he was also upset. Well, I was also upset, but I didn't get a chance to go back to the commissary to buy a load of American stuff. Like, I wanted to get Flaming Hot Cheetos and, you know, these, like, diabetic chocolate bars and whatever. Because uh, it's just fun. Like, you're paying US dollars and everything. It's remarkable. And so... Um, so anyway, he was there at the gig on a date, and I said to him, hey, man, um, I I'm probably going to have to get a cab, and it's going to cost me like 150 euros. Do you fancy giving me a lift? And he jumped at it, because like, we've had so many good chats on the way to and from all these gigs. Um, I think he saw it as just a good opportunity for a chin wag. I said I'd pay him petrol money and the, and the bloody rest. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so that's the context. We've just um, just travelled from this gig it was supposed to be about an hour and 15 in the car, but then we took a series of wrong turns. I ended up taking nearly two hours. And, uh, and I've, got, I've got just about an hour, I think, before I'm due to board my flight. Anyway, one of the things that we talked about was he asked me the question. He said, do you like your comedy? He said, do you, like, like, do you find your style of comedy funny? And I think, and it really floored me that question because loads of people... Like most questions about comedy, I think I've answered, or at least I've had a, you know, I've, I've thought about it, or I've had the question asked before. But this is the first time that someone asked me that. I don't think he meant it in a mean way. <laughs> like, I don't, think, I don't think he meant it like, okay, so I've watched your stuff. Do you like it? I think it was more that, uh, you know, he was curious that some acts uh, end up developing a style that's commercial, um, but it doesn't serve them or their soul. Thankfully, I'm not burdened by having such commercial success that I'm pigeonholed or indeed required <laughs> to do anything to do it. Oh no, people have started looking at me now. Maybe it's because I've started raising my voice. Okay, well, I'm, I'm going to own it. I'm going to commit to this. Yeah, yeah, I'm a, yeah, I'm a, yeah, I'm a podcaster. I'm just, I'm a, I'm a guy sat in a plastic chair in front of a cafe that charges six euros for a panini that's obviously closed, um, talking into a mic. Also, the battery on this recorder is really low, so I wonder if what ultimately might happen is this just stops because the battery dies. Anyway, we will see. So, I thought, well, I gave half an attempt to answering this question. I think it's something interesting. And the reason why I think it's interesting is, the question being, do I find my comedy funny, is uh, I watched Mike Babiglia last week. So, uh, I went and did some gigs in Luxembourg on Wednesday. So, Wednesday, Thursday, Luxembourg. Friday, Saturday, uh, Germany. That will be a Ryanair announcement. We continue. I, th I heard the word Stansted. Let's see. That could be me. 1748. Is that my flight? My flight is 6198. I'm good. So, do I find my comedy funny? I watched Mike Babiglia. Now, Mike Babiglia, loads of people have mentioned him to me because I've kind of got pigeonholed as a storytelling comedian, uh, so much so that one reviewer, when I did my first show in 2019, described me as a talented raconteur, and, I've, and I kind of felt viscerally opposed to that description. And 
Now I know how news presenters must feel when they've got like stories being fed into their ear while they're trying to talk about something else. I'm, I'm getting quite distracted by the Tannoy. 1748, that's not mine. My flight is boarding at zero. I've got at least an hour, I'm fine. So, I... Uh, <laughs> genuinely distracted by the automated announcement. Focus. I watched Mike Babiglia. He is an American storytelling comedian and loads of people love him and loads of people have mentioned him to me loads of people have said oh, Ollie you do uh, story uh, like storytelling com comedy you should do it uh, you should go watch him you should you know learn from him and two things one I think I am a storytelling comedian in the sense that I definitely don't do wry observations like I, r I remember watching on the next up stream Ian Smith and thinking, I just can't do what he does. I can't do that kind of like, this, you know, I've noticed this stuff. I think, well, he does do stories as well. Maybe he's not the best example. But I definitely structure my longer sets around a big thing, and then my laughs come from uh, little asides about that thing. I need that framework. Um, and I think that's because I don't have strong enough convictions about anything else. I think comedians that have really strong convictions, comedians which walk on stage and go, here's what I think about the world, or here's how the world should be, or here's one big thing I've noticed that shouldn't be, or whatever it is, that is enough to carry them, right? That is enough of kind of an intellectual framework or a, a means by which the audience can grip their teeth for them to then add a bunch of jokes. Um, or you're like Sean Walsh um, or Scott Bennett who can just describe things that we all do in a way that articulates it better than we can ever have done. I can't do that either. So I'm obviously a storytelling comedian in the sense that I have an event around which I use as a hook for asides and observations and, and whatever else. And the show I saw a show was the show I saw was called The Old Man and the Pool. And it's incredibly well marketed. You know, I clicked on his website once or twice and I got retargeted loads with adverts. And um, he's got loads of adverts all over London and He's kind of listed on all, on all the Today Ticks apps. You know, it's quite interesting for a, for a comedy show to be at the West End anyway. And he's in a proper West End theatre just outside Leicester Square Station. Beautiful theatre. The set also was just gorgeous. You know, it was, it was like a kind of a big, um, a big wave shape of a blue of a light blue kind of matting. You know, like when you do craft, you need a you need a mat to um, to like cut on, and it has like a crisscross of thin white lines so you know where to line up your stuff it was like that style then on it was a bunch of projections and the lighting was very beautiful the production was was absolutely incredible um and so i was excited to watch the show and i was really really unimpressed not in, well not, not no that's not true i was impressed he was very impressive technically very impressive the show was so well honed He's so good at performing. And although I was watching it, obviously, with a kind of a critical eye or a kind of a, a, a young comedian's gaze of, oh, I wonder what tricks he's going to pull. And I did notice some of them. I saw, oh, he's teed that up, but he's not resolved it. He'll probably close that loop later. Or, oh, he's mentioned that. That seems like a, a ripe for a callback or, you know, whatever it is, right? Technically, incredibly impressive. He glides onto stage. He's just so chill. He doesn't make any effort. Well, sorry. He, of course, he makes lots of effort. It's like a swan. He makes loads of effort to make it seem like he's making zero effort whatsoever, just throwing these like little thoughts and little ideas out to the audience. Um, 
very, very impressive, clearly very smart, very empathetic, but I did not get swept up in the story. The story was just not good enough. The story was vaguely about his health. I mean, I don't really want to spoil it in case people are going to see it. Um, but it's... Basically, my feeling about it was the story wasn't good enough. He was an expert storyteller, so he could sell it. But there wasn't all of the kind of core elements of storytelling. This like big problem to solve, or rather a big believable problem to solve. He did tug on our heartstrings by, you know, projecting notes from his diary on or about him reflecting that he was going to die soon. And, you know, unless he did this... Uh, he may end up dying or you know there was definitely certain elements of storytelling that, that that you could see okay well we've activated it here how are we going to find a resolution blah 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 but generally there was parts of the show where I even felt bored and that's something which I worry about my own comedy yes I'm reflecting that the big concern I've got is I've noticed a lot of comedians who kind of reach the 10 year mark which is where I'm just about at who've been doing it for a fair bit and have started to work out what they can do and have learned the tricks and have played lots of rooms, what happens is they get very, very, very skilled. They get very good at making an audience care, but what they're talking about isn't important. And I think you start stand-up comedy believing... Like, well, you start... You know, it's a mad thing to do, right? I, mean, <laughs> I kind of... I realised this as well at this basically open mic that I ended up closing today that you know it is just full of absolutely insane people who would be better served doing something else <laughs> with, with their spare time um but just that act of going up on stage and trying open mic comedy is a brave act of defiance uh you've normally got something interesting to say there's normally a reason why you're up there there's something you want to talk about something's happened you've had a thought you've had a change in your life there's a there's a, there's there's some activating reason why uh you started stand-up comedy. Stuart Goldsmith refers to it as like the, the initial act of bravery. And then what happens is you get good at selling stuff. And the risk is after 10, 15, 20 years, you've no, you're no longer interesting. That, that whatever energy was needed in order to get you on stage for the first time now no longer exists. And now you're having to just hunt around for things to talk about. Or you're having to just ju like jump on to the latest zeitgeist. Um, you, you just have to talk about trans issues because that's what everyone else is talking about without actually having any strong convictions or meaningful or, you know, or... No, maybe trans is the wrong example. But basically, I, I my feeling about my Biblia was I wish I'd watched his earlier shows because the one about him sleepwalking apparently... Well, that seems like a fascinating story. Right, like nearly killing yourself while sleepwalking. Um, and I'm not the only one that's thought this. Uh, some other, p when I, I put it on my Instagram, I was like, because <laughs> I, I posted on Instagram saying, I'm really excited about seeing this show. Let's see what the fuss is about. And then I kind of felt a bit guilty that I just like publicized something which I didn't really believe in. So then I, ha I did another story after the show and said, meh, you know, meh, kind of, yeah, technically great, but, you know, I don't think it's going to leave a lasting impression. And a couple of people got in touch saying, oh, I felt the same. And that's kind of what I worry about my shows. To answer that, you know, to I obviously didn't say all of this to um, to, my, to my friend in the car. I just answered saying, yeah, on the whole, um, I, 
you know, I, I do find what I do funny, and I actually do. If I'm watching a clip of me doing some crowd work where I'm really present and I've really made the right choice, I will giggle along because I think it's funny. Um, but yeah, my, my, my main kind of concern is what if I've just not got anything important to talk about? Or what if I stop having something important to talk about? And what if I get so good at the skill of storytelling that I can sell stuff that isn't really important? And I don't think that's happened yet. I think my first show, Pig in Japan, I did kind of create a story. I definitely created a narrative. But all of the diff all of the elements were true, and it was all really interesting in its own right. Right, you know what happens when a Western guy uh, seeks fame in the Japanese entertainment industry? That's interesting. My second show, Before After, basically what happens when you get stuck in Malaysia uh, during a pandemic, and also B plot stuff about my weight, and then the show which I've just done, A plot bad gigs, B plot. Uh, Domestic violence, C plot, Joe Pasquale slash falling in love, or oh, sorry, falling out of love. Um, but yeah, what 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 if I what if I stop having interesting things happen to me, or what if I don't develop strong enough convictions that I can that I can carry a show that way? So that's 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 been that's my answer to the question. Do I, do I find my own comedy funny? I think I do find my own comedy funny, but my risk is, oh, to Dublin. The flight to Dublin is now ready for boarding. So make sure you got your boarding passes. This is not ideal studio settings for a podcast, but I think it adds a certain charm. I think it's, I'm, on the, I'm on the front line of being a road comedian. So much of my time is spent at airports. I am so used to this environment. And the more time you spend at airports, the more you kind of see through it, particularly these smaller regional airports, the ones where, like, it is just one shed, and they've not even built walls all the way up to the top. So you can kind of see, okay, well, that's the area where the check-in desks is, that's the area where the security control is, that's the area where the passport control is, and that's the area where we all wait to board our flights. And it's all, like, you can see it all. In fact... There was an airport in uh, in Australia on the Sunshine Coast or the Gold Coast, really odd name, like a really long name airport, um, and it was tiny. I mean, they maybe had like four flights out there, and <laughs> you literally could, from the place where the people that were like checking the security bags, like from that area, you could reach across and grab a sandwich from the uh, the cafe concession. That's how tiny it was, and um, I think that kind of like. It's useful to remember stuff like stuff which, stuff which like has a system to put you through, right? It's always worth remembering that that has just been constructed. I kind of felt like that when I got over uni, when I like when I finally realised that oh, this whole system has been kind of set up to output a certain type of person, and you know there's not there's not the infrastructural support to to nurture people who want to deviate from this. And so if I want to do that, I've got to do it on my own terms. I think like once you realise that, ah, this has all been created. All these lines have been put in place by someone that wants you to follow them. Um, what I'm not saying is don't follow the airport lines. 
Um, <laughs> what I'm saying is it just feels, the airport feels like a less intimidating place when you realise it, it was all a bunch of bullshit. Anyway, I digress. This has no lounge at all. Or maybe it does, but it's not open. Uh, it has a McDonald's that closed just before... Uh, sorry, just well, it was supposed to close just before I got there, but I managed to uh, to sneak my way in with six of the best chicken nuggets I've had in a very long time. Uh, chicken nuggets are a very interesting product. I think they vary a lot regionally. And they knocked it out of the park here in Frankfurt, I have to say. They were served very hot. The outside batter was almost, I want to say, slightly doughy in a good way. You know, it, was, it wasn't it was just like a kind of a, a, a an over-fried, crisp outer layer. They had, had, had like a little bit of a bite, like a like a pakora. The barbecue sauce, uh, decent. The pommes frites sauce, which I think is mayonnaise with something, uh, absolutely knocked it out of the park too. Uh, so that's a bit of a saving grace at this airport other than that absolutely rubbish frankfurt Hart, frankfurt Hart airport oh frankfurt Hart airport's um slogan is we can airport we can airport anyway, it's, it's the bare minimum it, it does this functionally function as an airport the planes fly in and the passengers get on those planes and do they fly out again yes they do <laughs> well we can airport I guess the issue with doing this without a plan is I don't know how to end it. And I think I've already stumbled. I've already kind of entertained two or three flights of fan fantasy that if I'd planned this, I wouldn't have done. Looking at the time, I'm now on 21 minutes and 38 seconds, which was also proof that I've not cut anything, I suppose. If you're looking at this and that is how long the actual running time has been, uh, then that validates that. I think I'm going to end up putting this out and then maybe just not telling people. And then maybe I'll just do more of these. And then we'll we'll kind of see how it goes. But I've quite enjoyed this. I've now got in the flow. I've now, you know, I'm, I'm now just uh, just externalising any thought that's popping into my head. I wonder if tonally I sound good. I'm not wearing headphones. So I don't know whether me kind of speaking in a relatively hushed voice uh, into a microphone with its gain turned up on a windshield uh, makes me sound like husky and sexy. Um, or kind of like breathy and nervous. <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe, I, maybe I won't release this on the grounds that it's just, I'm so, I sound so wheezy, there's enough for a medical diagnosis. Anyway, what I can see in front of me is two little passport control booths where I will be getting a stamp in and out of the EU. Oh, it's just, it's ridiculous. I saw a video on Twitter of a bunch of EU, like, pro, uh, what was it, was it a pro-anti-Brexit, pro-EU, of, like, they want to, you know, Remainers, rejoiners, and they were doing, like, this kind of mad Morris dance, style dance in front of the British Parliament, I thought, well, absolutely, what a, a colossally lame way to represent an, a very valid political cause, or even economic cause, to rejoin, at the very least, the customs union and single market. Um, it is a different way of life when you consider yourself interconnected. I did the show in Luxembourg. My plan was to take the train from Luxembourg to Germany. Instead, uh, somebody who came to the show, uh, an open mic comic who I've met before and I'm friendly with Georgia, she uh, was like, I'm thinking of driving to go watch the show tomorrow. And I was like, okay, cool. She's like, do you want to come with me? I'm like, that sounds great. 
and then we just drive from Luxembourg to Germany and there's just a, a river and you cross the river and then all the signs change language and she just lives a life between three countries she might drive up to norm she might drive up, up to France and you know she presumably one of the one of the countries she has to like have as her administrative home she probably pays taxes in one of them but she literally does live work and dare I say love uh, in three different countries and it's, it's like that's so good but I guess the problem is that there aren't enough British people that ever benefited from that you know this idea that you know you can literally get to Paris quicker than you can Edinburgh doesn't really bother someone that doesn't ever go to Edinburgh anyway you know I think that so I really benefited like I remember being a, an Erasmus student in Paris and having a Hungarian girlfriend who went to go and work in Luxembourg and just like you know just seeing this whole continent as just kind of our playground and obviously you know looking back there's, there's just, there are not many people that have had that incredible opportunity to see Europe that way to see it as a as a place of <laughs> dare I say a place to meet attractive women and a place to <laughs> a place to shoot very good looking you know I would never have met a Hungarian if I wasn't in Europe um you know, and, and, a, and a place to, to kind of thrive. And maybe, maybe, that, maybe that's the issue. Maybe that it was just a small number of, of the British population that ever benefited uh, or, or ever kind of felt like they benefited, you know, could, could see in front of their own eyes and could make life plans benefiting from the EU infrastructure would be buying things from a German shop and sending them in you know maybe obviously there's loads of other benefits of like on a supply chain level and on a commerce level but we didn't necessarily see that um, I do continue to ramble I'm gonna call it call it a day if you listen to this well done because I don't think I would have posted it anywhere maybe I would have sent a link to someone if they asked me for my thoughts on Babiglia over and out. Stay toxic. <laughs>